This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we are doing a good old-fashioned Recode Media, big media business pod. First up, we've got CNBC's Alex Sherman, who wrote one of the best media stories of the year a while back. It's on the Bob Iger, Bob Chapek drama. Alex takes us on a deep dive into all things Disney. What's it going to do with ESPN? What's it going to do with Hulu? And what is up with Bob Iger anyway? As I note during our chat, we recorded this before Disney's earnings on Wednesday afternoon. It holds up just fine. And then we've got a return visit from Brian Stelter, who's got a new book. It's a second book about Fox News. This one is called Network of Lies. Brian takes us behind the scenes and tells us why Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch really fired Tucker Carlson. It's probably not why Tucker Carlson says he got fired. And why Fox News remains the cultural, political, business powerhouse that it is. Also, some speculation about Rupert Murdoch's next move. Okay, it's a good one, so let's get right to it. Here's me and Alex Sherman. Alex Sherman from CNBC is rejoining us. He comes on occasionally to make us smarter about all things media business. Thanks for coming back, Alex. Thanks, Peter. Always happy to be here. I wanted to spend time talking with you about Disney, which is something we talk about a lot on this show, particularly with you. We've got a bunch of things to talk about, but very big picture. Why do you spend so much time reporting and thinking about Disney and its future? Why is it important compared to the many other media companies? Yeah, I think it's sort of best in class, or at least it's thought to be by the general investor community among the legacy media companies. So maybe take Netflix and throw them aside. Certainly, Disney Plus was kind of thought to be the streaming service that would have the most uh, staying power among all the legacy media companies as as all of the streaming services developed. Clearly, the Disney brand resonates with people beyond just the CNBC community, and that is important to me. This is a company that has been around for a long time that is interwoven in many people's lives, much more so than Paramount Global or you know some of the smaller media companies that just don't have that same brand recognition. And also, it's a somewhat complicated company. I mean, they have a large theme parks division. They own ESPN, or at least 80% of it. They own other legacy uh, cable networks, and they own ABC, and then they have this new streaming business and other assets. And so it's just an interesting company to cover because you can attack it from so many different ways. We spent years uh, discussing the streaming wars and watching Netflix take basically a full lead, like a lap around everyone else. And then the conventional wisdom was if any company was going to, any legacy media company was going to thrive slash survive the transition to digital, it was going to be Disney. Does that still seem like the case to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, look, Disney Plus has well over 100 million subscribers. That's more than all the other legacy media, by and large, uh, streaming services have. So I do think they're in the pole position to survive this. The bigger macro question that I think has emerged recently is 
they did this for what? You know, in, in other words, I think there's a valid theory out there that Disney's plunge into streaming maybe doomed Disney and all the other legacy media companies. Yeah, so, this is a, a thing you hear all the time. All the, the media companies all had this great business model with cable TV and movies, and they trashed it all to chase after Netflix, which I think is kind of half bullshit. So do I, because what else were they going to do? Right. They couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep their old business going. You can argue with the tactics and the strategy, and maybe they pursued it too fast, too heavy. A lot of it was they thought they were going to get a Netflix valuation. They didn't. That is the story of AT&T and Time Warner slash Warner Media. But they couldn't just continue to not be streaming, to not be digital. Yeah, I think the valid criticism there maybe is in the pricing of it. I mean, this was thought to be sort of an add-on service, and Bob Iger came in strong with a very low price for Disney Plus to try to wow everybody. And it did. It dazzled and 10 million people signed up in day one. But I think what we've seen is that such a low price for this service has led to a lot of money lost across the board for yeah. all these companies. And I think the bigger picture is, yeah, they had this great cable TV business, but that's going away. And it's not going away because Disney Plus exists. It's going away because people for a long time have stopped paying for cable TV. So what are you going to do? You have to do something. Right. And the argument, I guess, in the Disney sense there is perhaps they erred in being so aggressive, pushing price increase on ESPN for year after year after year, that that was a, a fairly large cause of the reason that the price of the cable bundle got to be so expensive, which therefore led to millions of people canceling it when they saw that there were these other streaming services around the edge that were cheaper. But again, like, you know, I still think that's a marginal explanation. By and large, technology happens, Netflix happened. There's so many more uh, variables than just pinning this thing on Disney as to why this golden goose of a business has slowly eroded. There's a couple pieces of Disney I want to talk to you about specifically, but one more big picture question. We're recording this on Tuesday. Disney earnings are coming out a day later on Wednesday. You'll hear this on Thursday. Nelson Peltz, we now call him an activist shareholder, has been banging on Disney. Like all activist shareholders, he wants the stock price to go up. He has various arguments as to how that should happen. Do we expect him or Disney to say anything meaningful about this fight come earnings? So Nelson Peltz has been unusually, perhaps, quiet since uh, bulking up his stake fairly recently, uh, You know, combined with his friend Ike Perlmutter's shares, former uh, head of Marvel. He owns about $2.5 billion of Disney stock now. He has not said anything publicly about what he wants to do or what he wants Disney to do, but he's hovering around the edges as wanting a board seat or board seats and could even go the full proxy fight round where he nominates a new slate of directors. The reason I think this earnings call is important is I believe this has been sort of the reason he hasn't said anything. He His camp, from my understanding, uh, is waiting to see what Disney says if they say anything material in this earnings call or in this earnings results before they kind of make their case to the public about why they should get board seats. Um, the question is, will Disney say anything, all that material, in terms of asset sales or cutting costs on streaming? I mean, these would be the basic general things that I would imagine Tryon and Nelson Peltz, that's the name of his uh, hedge fund, Tryon, wants to hear. I, I just doubt it. I, from my understanding, there has not been much traction on the ABC sale 
Uh, we know that- Bob Iger earlier said, oh, we're, we're look, basically everything's for sale, yeah. potentially. Definitely ABC, definitely some of the, the lower value cable networks. I think that maybe what has been confusing both to Pelts and the broader investment community is that sort of out of character, I think, in many ways for Bob Iger, who's pretty um, buttoned up, I would say, in general. And pretty as a CEO, sophisticated, sophisticated about communication. Correct. He has sort of thrown out all sorts of different things Disney might do. And there's a lot of confusion about what actually is going to happen and what isn't. So he came out and said, we would consider selling ABC. We would consider selling our, some of our legacy cable networks. We're looking potentially to get strategic partners in ESPN. They've had talks with the uh, professional sports leagues, all four of them, to potentially buy into ESPN. He once talked about maybe selling Hulu, but has now since come around and said, eh, you know, actually, I think we'll just buy that. Uh, the, the This is the one-third stake of Hulu that Comcast has owned for years. That transaction, I think, will happen in the coming months. But I don't really know, and nobody else knows, what Disney is actually doing here. So will Disney sell ABC? Unclear. Will Disney get a deal done for strategic partners for ESPN? Unclear. Um, and so maybe we'll get some clarity on that, but I kind of doubt it. I can tell you you're a professional communicator because you just made a nice segue for me. I want to talk about ESPN. Like we said, Iger has said he wants a strategic partner, which means he wants someone to buy some of ESPN. He's also, this is, he said for years, one day we might spin off ESPN as a standalone product. He's saying that's more likely now than ever, but won't put a date on it. In the last few weeks, Disney put out numbers that actually for the first time showed how ESPN is faring as a division. It's never done that. We've always done sort of informed speculation. So let's start there. What are the numbers that Disney put out about ESPN? Tell us about the state of the company and the direction, state of ESPN and the direction of ESPN. So the biggest thing that I think a lot of the uh, analysts jumped on is it gives people a firm valuation or valuation estimate of what ESPN is worth. And so this is important for two reasons. One, if you're going to make a strategic partnership deal, in other words, if someone's going to buy equity in ESPN, they need to have a value of it so they know how much to invest. But they don't need to put that in a public document. They don't. So the the reason why you might want to put it in a public document is that although just a brief rewind, though they don't need to put that in a public document, the numbers would come out and therefore people would know right. how much this thing was yep. worth anyways. Uh, you might want to put it in a public document though is if longer term you're preparing to spin off or sell ESPN. That would be a reason because then everybody knows exactly what the finances are. So people all around the investment world can decide, is this something that makes sense in our portfolio? Or Disney can decide, does it make sense to spin this thing off? So ESPN still makes quite a bit of money, about $3 billion in profit annually. So the the, the investment case is that you know this thing's probably worth, I don't know, Somewhere between twenty and thirty billion dollars. It makes three billion in profit, but it's declining. It's declining. That's the part two of this. It's declining, and I think everyone understands that there's no quick fix to the end of this decline. Like ESPN has been a wonderful business for Disney because when anybody buys cable TV, you are paying about ten dollars or more for ESPN per month, every month, no matter if you watch ESPN or not. So. Two things. One, this idea that he's going to get a strategic partner for ESPN. Again, he wants an investor. 
people have floated all kinds of different ideas for a while. This idea that a gambling company would be a partner that always seemed preposterous to me, and now they've done a deal with with pens. That presumably takes that off the table. The idea that a, a sports league would be an investor is something people talk about a lot, but I don't get that. If you're a sports league, your whole business is selling your rights to everyone or to as many people as possible. The NFL is really good at that. The NBA is trying to do it. What is the logic, not for Disney getting that partner, but why would a sports league want to invest in ESPN? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me either. And I haven't been given a coherent explanation about why okay, good. a I sports league would want to do that. And then to be clear, when Disney's talking about spinning out ESPN, is that separate from saying ESPN is a product that you have to buy separately from cable? Or is it just there's a standalone company called ESPN that is sold as part of the Disney bundle, which is continues to exist? Which which version of reality are we talking about? So there are two versions of reality here. So one version of reality is you spin out ESPN as a separate publicly traded company. Probably that is controlled still by Disney. Like but 51% you, or exactly, something. Exactly. But you sell a float of it to the public, and then that trades as a publicly traded company, ostensibly run by Jimmy Pitaro, the current head of ESPN, and you theoretically increase the value of Disney because it's not encumbered by this declining asset anymore, and then you keep Disney in the sports game because they still own the majority of this other publicly traded company. And they can still, when they do deals, like they just did with Charter, and there was some interesting reporting and commentary about it. We're getting a little in the weeds here. But there was a big fight between Charter, what used to be called Time Warner Cable, a big carriage fight, and there was a lot of speculation that, that Disney had sort of lost its bargaining power or the SPN. There's a debate about that. The upshot of that is everyone who gets cable from Charter – or it's called Spectrum in different places, is still going to get ESPN for the most part. It's almost impossible not to get ESPN, and that deal is going to continue to exist in the future. Presumably, Disney will do more of those. So that's that makes it seem like it's less likely to sell ESPN as a separate product. Right. So the second version of reality is that ESPN stays in the Disney portfolio as part of Disney, but it sells a minority stake in ESPN, ESPN, by the way, is only owned 80% today by Disney, 20% owned by Hearst. But it still lives within the Disney world and is consolidated within Disney finances. And that could continue on by selling some percentage that's up to 50%, but a little less, to a variety of strategic partners, one strategic partner. Again, as I've reported, they've had talks with all four professional sports leagues. So theoretically, they could each take a stake that gets up to whatever the math there is, uh, you know, uh, 29% or whatever it may be um, altogether. So I think that's plan A, is to keep ESPN within Disney. Disney keeps selling ESPN and ESPN Plus as part of its bundle. And it continues to be consolidated within Disney. Plan B, which might be the longer-term plan, is to just spin the thing out. Because you could actually spin off ESPN even after you sold a minority stake. So this could be a two-part deal where there were strategic partners in there, and then it gets spun off as a separately traded company. If you are someone who watches television and watches sports, you're trying to keep track of this, what are the odds that you are going to have to or give the or have the option to buy ESPN as a standalone service, just like you can now do with HBO, which was never supposed to happen, and then it became a reality. 
the odds are extremely high. If that does not happen, the entire Disney management team has been lying to us publicly for about a year now. The only question is when, not if. Uh, My reporting indicates the most likely timeline is 2025 for when Disney will make a standalone ESPN product available to buy. We also don't know how much that would cost. There's a lot of speculation there. People seem to float the idea of 30 bucks a month. Does that sound reasonable to you? That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Um, so again, I, if you don't get Disney ESPN as part of your cable bundle, you don't have a cable bundle, you just want to get what's on ESPN, you could buy that for 30 bucks a month. If you're getting traditional cable or digital cable like I get through Hulu, it would just still be in your package. That's right. So, so dual track there. It stays as a cable network, but it's also available outside the bundle. It's sort of the last thing, by and large, that is not available already outside of the bundle in one way. So uh, there's a reason for that, which is that ESPN has been so profitable within the bundle that Disney has gone sort of as far as it can go at this point by keeping it exclusive to the bundle. And does Disney think there are a lot of people who want to pay 30 bucks a month for ESPN who aren't getting cable? Or are they like, look, we know most people are continue to get, are going to continue to get it as part of the bundle. If we offer it here, it exists. It's a thing. Maybe in the future, as as traditional cable continues to decline, that's our lifeline. But we think the reality is this is is not what most people want. Many people assume we're just headed toward a new recreation of the bundle within streaming services. So maybe you don't want ESPN as a $30 a month product, but maybe bundled with Disney Plus and Hulu and some other stuff that they can bring along from other companies, that becomes a more appealing product because you end up actually spending less money on that than you would on traditional cable. Let's go to Hulu, which is also important to the bundle. You mentioned again, there was sort of the formal announcement that Hulu, Disney is going to buy the remaining third of Hulu that they don't own. Comcast currently owns that. Um, You and many others have reported this was going to happen. They put out a press release essentially saying that's going to happen. So there's some transactional stuff. They, you know, there's a debate about how much Hulu is worth. They're going to have a fight over that. Eventually, it will come to some number. I think that part is less interesting. I think the more interesting question is, why does Disney want to own all of Hulu? This is a company that they have debated owning for a long time. Um, And what will happen once they own all of it? So Disney already owns two-thirds of it and made a deal back in 2019 to buy the remaining one-third of it in early 2024. So that deadline has been pushed up a few months now, so it may theoretically happen before the end of the year. But I think there's a case to be made that Disney may not want to own all of Hulu and would just kind of like to sell it, but they're sort of stuck at this point. They signed a deal. They signed a deal. Basically, Comcast is saying, you are going to buy the rest of Hulu from us. Correct. So, And Comcast has that right to force the, the transaction to happen. They would have to make a completely new deal with Disney to get out of that. And Comcast wants the money. And to be honest, from a competitive standpoint, Comcast probably wants Disney to fork over $10 billion or whatever so that Disney's balance sheet worsens relative to Comcast because these two companies Remind are- us why they signed this deal that forced Disney to spend billions of dollars for a product they may not have wanted. Maybe. I mean, it's certainly possible. But, but um, why, why, why did that deal- Why was that deal struck to begin with? So, I, uh, at least on the face of it at the time, it was struck for sort of the reverse reason, which was that 
Comcast felt like the valuation of Hulu would be higher five years from now than it was in 2019. So they, Comcast was boxed in. So the, just to take a quick step back, Disney acquired a majority stake in Hulu when it acquired Fox. So it got that 33% stake that Fox owned of Hulu. So now it had 66% of Hulu. And so it could kind of do whatever it wanted with Hulu. And so to answer your question about why it might want the whole thing, Hulu is a domestic product. And if Disney wants to maximize the value of Hulu, they could turn this into an international product. But because of the split ownership, anything that Disney did to advance the value of Hulu would also benefit Comcast when it owned one third or a third of the entirety of Hulu. So to get 100% of it, now you can go full-fledged with whatever plan you want to do, and you don't have to worry about also profiting your competitor. Sure, but what is but what is Hulu to Disney, right? Disney launched Disney Plus, um, which was primarily kid stuff, but has stuff for adults. Um, that was their big streaming push. They have that already. Hulu, going way back, was created by multiple networks as sort of a hedge against Apple and YouTube. This is really a long time ago. And the main idea originally was you can use Hulu to watch yesterday's TV today for free. They've since moved beyond that. Now it's a bunch of old television shows, some new stuff. It doesn't have the prestige, really, of Netflix or HBO. So what it basically has now a so Disney is going to end up having to own another streaming service on top of the streaming service it already launched, which has already said we kind of overshot our mark here. We spent too much. So it's a long-winded way of saying, what do they do with not one but two streaming services? If you were to design this today, I don't think Hulu would exist. Disney would say we have a streaming service. It is branded Disney. It is called Disney Plus. And we will make this both a general entertainment service for adults and a kid's version. And it will live in the same world. But that's not the world we live in. Hulu does exist. And it has 48 million customers. And it has a brand. And it has a solid advertising business that's been around for a long time, which is appealing to Disney. So Disney is put in a position now where... What management has said publicly is that Disney Plus will eventually have a Hulu tab where you can watch Hulu within the Disney Plus experience. But I agree that there's just kind of this other thing now that is fully formed to some degree that Disney needs to say, okay, well, it is. We don't just want to shut this thing down. So we'll live with it and we'll bundle it in with Disney Plus and therefore we'll try to get people to subscribe to more than one Disney product, and we can make more money off of that by having this bundle that also will include, I would imagine, the standalone ESPN when it exists. Right now, it includes ESPN+, Plus, which is this junior varsity version of ESPN. But again, I just think Disney is sort of stuck in this world. It's not how it would have designed it if it could. So you're describing a mess. You're describing something that Disney wouldn't, in general, right? With ESPN, Hulu, sale the assets. This is all a mess. You know, it's kind of a champagne problem because it's still Disney, but it is a mess. Well, it's, less of a champagne problem than it was. Yep. Like Disney's shares have not done well. Right. And so this is a problem that, that Bob Iger 
basically set in motion multiple ways. Then Bob Iger left the company, handed it over to Bob Chapek. Bob Iger came back. Um, we have talked about this multiple different times with different guests, but I have not talked to you about it. And you have written the definitive story about Bob Iger and Bob Chapek and what happened, how Bob Iger gave Bob Chapek the job and how he took it back. Uh, the story, you published his story in September. I'm remiss from not, for not having you on earlier to talk about it. If you're listening to this podcast, you have just a good chance you've read this story. If you're in Hollywood, you have definitely read this story. Everyone in Hollywood has read this. I've talked to Alex about it. For some reason, you haven't read this. Go read it. But just summarize. What, what By is the, the way, you'll be able to listen to it in podcast form, I believe, coming out today. What? Yeah. Uh, you didn't tell me you're doing the narrative podcast. That's, That's great. Right, yeah. So what is the takeaway, right? We know that Bob Iger famously could not leave Disney. He kept saying he was going to leave Disney and didn't. Then he finally left Disney and came back. What is the takeaway from your piece about how this was handled? What does it tell us about Disney and Bob Iger? So there are, again, two ways, I would say, of reading what happened. One is that Bob Iger very quickly realized he never wanted to give up the CEO job of Disney, and then he spent about two and three quarters years of passive-aggressively making sure that he continuously let everyone around him know that he still wanted to be the CEO of Disney. And undermining his chosen successor. Undermining his chosen successor, and then eventually ended up, again, the CEO of Disney, and he subsequently very quickly extended his contract, so he will now be the CEO of Disney for years to come. That's one way of reading it. The other way of reading it is Bob Iger made a mistake, and he thought that Bob Chapek was really the right guy to run this company. He thought that this guy would sort of um, work hand-in-hand -hand with Bob Iger for 20 months as Bob Iger stuck around as executive chairman. And then by the time Bob Iger really did retire, Bob Chapek would have given Iger a true hero's welcome for 22 months, and he Iger would be able to ride off into the sunset and Chapek would carry forward the plan that Iger handed him to grow Disney Plus, and Disney shares would soar along with Bob Iger staking them, and that would be it. Then COVID hit. None of that really happened. The whole plan kind of went out the window. Iger immediately wanted to get back in the saddle because of this crisis that uh, the company was under. Bob Chapek felt like Iger was just taking his job back from him, and he was like, well, I was supposed to be CEO, and now you want your job back immediately, and so therefore the whole thing spiraled out of control. Again, if you if you watch Succession, and of course you did because you listened to this podcast, this story is just full of Succession, like details, like Iger leaves the company, but not really. He keeps the big office with the shower. He doesn't give Chapek the big office. He makes Chapek have the smaller office. There's a great scene on a private plane. There's a great scene where uh, Iger throws himself a big party at his house. He invites Chapek. They already now at this point hate each other. He's hoping Chapek doesn't come. Chapek has a conflict. Iger's like, great, he's got a conflict. Chapek says, well, I have to come. Actually, it'd be bad. So he sits uncomfortably at this party. Yeah, totally miserable through the it's party. It's all this. It's just, you know, when you ever think about the most successful people in media and, and how rich they are and all the perks they have, this story just shows you actually how personally miserable some of them are all the time. But aside from all that, what does this tell us about, about Bob Iger, who has to navigate through all these problems we've just laid out that Disney is facing? Oh, and we haven't even talked about it, and this is what I talked to Joanna Robinson about, the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was a major engine for Disney for a decade plus, may be sputtering, may be reaching the end of its life. So he's got to navigate that problem, too, which, again, he kind of created himself. So you've laid out this 
juicy, fun story. But what does it tell us about Disney today, Iger today? Yeah, so I'll answer that and I'll sort of weave in a little bit of the Marvel stuff. Bob Iger comes back to this company and on almost every level, Disney is just leaking water. Whether it's Marvel getting stale or Star Wars getting stale or, or sort of the lack of new generation content too generation much. there. Or maybe too, too much. much of all that Too stuff. much and maybe too few good movies. Um, too much other. Uh, the theme parks have struggled in the summer relative to the big boom they had during COVID. The legacy assets are dying on the vine. Streaming continues to lose money. Disney had this audacious number between 230 and 260 million Disney Plus subscribers by the end of 2024. There is no way they're going to get anywhere close to that number. They're going to have to revise down. I don't know why they haven't done this already. Maybe they will during this coming earnings call. Every single aspect of this company is worse than it was three years ago. And so Iger's coming back. I think it's fair to say Iger blames Chapek for for some of what had went wrong there, but he's now coming back, and you know I'm told he's working harder than he ever has in his life to try to revive this company and take it into a new strategic direction. And the the fascinating thing about this, I think, is that had Iger not come back, he would be in the Hall of Fame of media CEOs. Now that he is back. He risks ruining his own legacy to try to save this entity that he associates himself so much with. And, of course, the board wanted him back because they feel like he's the only guy, maybe, that can solve this problem because he created Disney. And, by the way, the board did a terrible job of succession planning. So it was sort of Bob Chapek. And only Bob Chapek, and then there was just nobody else on the bench that was a clear successor after Bob Chapek other than Iger himself. So to me, what it says is Iger says, don't care about the legacy, or maybe I do care about the legacy in the sense that I messed up succession and I want to come back so I can at least right that one wrong that I have. But it's totally unclear to me that he can solve any of the problems of Disney or that he can pick a successor that can solve those problems. And just to interject for a second, when we say, oh, it's the theory that Chapek screwed this all up. I mean, it's I say this a lot, but it's important to keep reminding people a lot of the problems that Iger is dealing with are Iger problems. The you know, spent too much on streaming, created too much Marvel, and did, these are all things that that Iger put in place. The Hulu problem, the the decline of ESPN, he oversaw all of that, and or actually, you know, kicked off a process to create that. Uh, yeah, I would argue almost none of the problems are Bob Chapek's problems, even though I think Iger and his camp would argue that some of them are. Mm -hmm. These are macro strategic issues that all relate to pre-Bob Chapek days, right. I think, for sure. So the world has changed, and now Disney needs to change. And so Bob Iger, who's 72 years old, is going to be the person that is going to have to figure out the changes, or he needs to pick the person who's going to figure out those changes. It is very unclear to me that he can do this. He now has an activist shareholder in Nelson Peltz that's hovering around. And so the thing that I allude to in the story is that the guy that was the CEO of Disney before Bob Iger, Michael Eisner, was also thought to be the king of the world for many years. And then toward the end of his reign as Disney CEO, which lasted about 20 years, 
it all went away from him, and the board turned on him, and he kind of resigned in disgrace to some degree. The idea that Bob Iger would sort of walk away with his tail between his legs seems, even today, still a little far-fetched to me, but it's not zero anymore. Yeah, and the other part of the the Eisner-Iger story is that when Iger took over from Eisner, no one in media believed that Iger could do the job, that he was a stuffed shirt, he was a former weatherman, he didn't really have any creative chops. And over a couple decades, he has transformed himself into, you know, maybe the best known, best loved CEO in America in a lot of ways. And so to me, the question is, when this is over from his legacy standpoint, does this phase look like Michael Jordan on the Wizards? Where it was like, yeah, that guy came back. That was kind of fun. It wasn't the same thing. But then he just kind of walked away, and that was the end of it. Or does he risk really tarnishing his legacy here? Because now all of these outsiders start focusing on the stuff that he didn't do right in a way that they would not have focused it on if he had not come back as the CEO. The Fox acquisition, getting into Disney, pushing Disney all all in on streaming when maybe that wasn't as good of a business, destroying the value of ESPN. All of these things now people are starting to talk about that I really don't know if quite the same focus would be there if somebody else was running Disney. I'm glad you went Jordan Wizards because usually the analogy I want to use is Willie Mays at the end of his career. But frankly, that was a dated reference when I first heard it. And now it's literally ancient history. So we're going to we're gonna go with Jordan Wizards. Thank you for that. I didn't know you were coming out to plug a podcast. Plug your podcast. So th- this is not really my podcast per se, but CNBC is going to launch a two-part podcast, uh, which is my own narration of this Disney story, which, as you mentioned, is 12,000 words. I believe the podcast runs about uh, an hour and 22 minutes. It's cut up into two pieces. So if you haven't read the story and you would prefer to digest it in audio form, uh, I narrated the whole thing. And so that might be an easier way to... um, to, to go about consuming it. Instant listen. Okay. Alex Sherman, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Alex Sherman. Right back with Brian Stelter after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm here again with media journalist extraordinaire Brian Stelter. We had Brian on recently to talk about Fox and what happens to Fox when Rupert Murdoch retires. Now he's here to talk about Fox again. He's got a new book. It's called Network of Lies, which is a good name for a book about Fox. It's Brian's second book about Fox. The first one was called Hoax in 2020. Brian, welcome. Thank you. You know, I I wrote Hoax too early. I wrote it prematurely because I wrote it before the big lie and before Dominion and before all the scandals. Well, that was my first question. So I had to go back and do it again. Yeah. Why why is Fox worth writing two books about? Two books in within three years about. My own self-critique is that hoax, like a lot of reporting about media and a lot of other professions, uh, was largely using anonymous sources. And that's all I had. That's all I could get. You know, I wasn't going to get Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity to go on the record. So I was using anonymous sources to describe how Fox uh, affected the Trump White House and how Trump affected Fox. 
But then Dominion happens. You know, then the defamation case happens. Then Dominion is on the inside of Fox, looking at its ugly guts, reading all these emails and texts. And Dominion publishes so much of it through its filings earlier this year. I had this experience of thinking, wow, I almost wrote my book too soon. I have to go do it again because now I have all these on-the-record accounts of how Fox really works. In bigger picture, even if you did the book you wanted this time around, we've read a lot about Fox. We've heard a lot about Fox. I think most people who listen to this podcast have a pretty fixed idea about what Fox, and specifically Fox News we're talking about here, is what it isn't, what it does to the country. Why spend so much time digging into, to be crude, what we kind of know is kind of a cesspool. Like, it's a cesspool. What else are you going to tell us? I think it's more complicated than that. I think Fox is many things. Uh, Yes, part of it is a GOP propaganda machine. Part of it is a MAGA media empire. And a lot of it's distorting reality and, and, and brainwashing people. It's also a complex news operation. It's also a lifestyle brand. You know, so I would say, number one, it's it's many things in one. And with regards to Network of Lies, I think Fox was more directly responsible for the chaos of the post-2020 election than people realized at the time. It was more directly responsible for sowing the big lie that led to the riot at the Capitol. And I'd actually make the case, and I do in the book, that all of the indictments, all the Trump trials are all related in one way or another to the misguided advice he was given by Fox, the misinformation of the Fox machine. So I think what we're seeing today, what we're going to see in the next few months with all these trials, it very directly relates to this, um, to these materials in the book. It's a useful corrective, I think, because oftentimes in my world, we spend a lot of time thinking about social media platforms correctly. And so people often want to say, well, this thing happened because of Facebook or this thing happened because of Twitter. There's sort of a shorthand, oh, Facebook got got uh, Trump elected in, in, in 2016, or maybe it was Twitter, same thing around in 2020. And often, so people want to point a finger at someone. And I think miraculously for, for the Murdoch family, they often skip Fox News. I think they just sort of take it for granted. It's like the weather. It's like the climate. And and to some extent, that's true. Fox News has been around, you know, a quarter of a century. And it is very much, um, you know, it's it's settled in. It's it's not going anywhere. <laughs> there was another recent book. Uh, this one was by Michael Wolf. It was subtitled The End of Fox News. Uh, and that cracked me up because uh, I think that's liberal wish casting. It's a fantasy that Fox News is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Tucker Carlson departure hurt Fox, especially in the short term. It benefited Newsmax. But Fox is pretty much back to where it was six months ago. Not not 100%, but I would say 90% back. The audience always comes back. This thing is a force to be reckoned with. That was the Fox thinking when Carlson left was, we've, we've swapped out people before. We'll come back. And lots of very smart people were saying, this time is different. I want to ask you about Carlson's departure. You said it's a departure. He was fired by right. Rupert Murdoch. You wrote about, there's an excerpt from your book in Vanity Fair out already. When Carlson was fired, it was right after the Dominion settlement, $787.5 million. And there were a couple competing theories that came out after Carlson was fired. One came from Carlson, sometimes on the record, sometimes you know laundered through an anonymous source, which is probably him, saying he, <laughs> he had to be fired because Dominion required it. It was part of the settlement um, mm-hmm. that Dominion wanted him fired. The New York Times reported a different version. They said, oh, there were these scandalous text messages that came out through Discovery, and that's what pushed Rupert Murdoch over the edge. I find the first theory laughable, but you can tell me. The second one, I think, is also a stretch. But you know now, you've been spending all this time. Why did Rupert Murdoch fire Tucker Carlson, his biggest star, the face of the network? 
all of the above, but it was not a condition of the Dominion settlement the way that uh, Carlson has laughably claimed. You, you know that expression about how you walk all the way around a story? That That's what David Carr you know, taught me. I think he taught you that too. Like you try to walk all the way around it, see it from every angle. That's what I did with the Tucker firing um, you know, and, and also with the Dominion case, trying to talk to every lawyer involved. Even the mediator who was in Eastern Europe on a vacation when he was called in to mediate between Dominion and Fox. Now, having walked all the way around the story, it's clear to me Dominion did not want Tucker Carlson fired. In fact, they viewed him as a positive witness for their case. They wanted him on the stand to help Dominion. But I do also, think they the didn't Dominion case, care. Right? They did not care. They were His trying to retrieve money in a libel suit. They don't care what Fox That's does right. after the fact. And they succeeded in that. But I do think the Dominion case affected Tucker in the following way. It's one thing for you to kind of know that he's an, uh, you know insulting colleagues behind the scenes, sending ugly emails. It's another thing when those messages are read to you in a deposition. It's another thing when the Fox board retains a law firm to go through his messages to see what else could hurt us as a company. That's what really happened. That is uh, what was a factor, but it was only one factor. I, I make the case in the book that there were dozens of factors that led up to Carlson being canned. And it's like any bad breakup. It wasn't one thing, it was everything. But just to sit in this for a second, because yeah. Carlson was the face of the network. He was its yeah. biggest star. So even though there's a lot of stuff and you can you can have a breakup, there's someone you love and then eventually you don't and you want to move on. It's a publicly traded company. It's in the it's a for-profit business. It's one thing to go, I'm kind of sick of Tucker Carlson. It's another thing to say, I'm going to remove Tucker Carlson from the air. Meanwhile, by the way, there are people coming after Fox, right? There are rival networks. There is eventually an erosion in some way to the internet. What's your sense of sort of, is this something that Rupert Murdoch decided sort of overnight or is this something where he's thinking about it for months and finally gets to a breaking point? The latter, and I would put it more on Lachlan than on Rupert. What I noticed when I went through all of Rupert's marriages and divorces is that he sometimes puts up with people for a while. He tolerates people. This was true you know, at his companies. He would tolerate folks for a while, and then all of a sudden, he just cuts them off. And I think that's what happened um, with, with Tucker Carlson. You know, There was a, uh, an avalanche of reasons to part ways with him, uh, and both father and son agreed eventually to, to go ahead and do it. I also think there might be something to the idea that Lachlan maybe was showing his skeptical siblings that he is a long-term leader of Fox, that he was showing his you know, liberal brother who doesn't speak with him, James, that uh, that he knows what he's doing. Now, you know, sources, you know, sometimes take an exception to that theory, but I think it's interesting to think about Lachlan Murdoch, this conservative son, the chosen son, the guy who as of you know November 17th will be the sole leader of Fox Corporation. Think about Lachlan Murdoch trying to send a message, trying to show who's boss, trying to, you know, and, and by the way, this next thing I'm going to say, Peter, you're going to laugh. The, the listeners are going to think I'm crazy. But maybe Lachlan was trying to drag Fox News just a little bit closer to reality, just a little bit. And and I say that with all the caveats and asterisks that, yes, there's still far right programming. And, and yes, I think some of the content's extreme and Jesse Waters, you know, yada, yada, yada. But by removing Tucker, he did make an actual editorial change to the network. I'm going to ask about Lachlan in a second, but first to stay on Carlson. Uh, he responded to Business Insider about, or sorry, maybe it's Insider, about your book. It's a great quote. Ha, Stelter is a sad little moron. He knows nothing. I can ask you to respond to that. <laughs> but but he, uh, uh, Tucker, then went to, to Twitter and started, ported his show over there, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Seems less interesting now. But what's your sense of does Carlson still matter in right-wing media, in conservative politics? Are you going to track him? 
he's been floated as a possible candidate? Um, or is he now that he's off Fox, is he sort of in that Bill O'Reilly category where he's going to have some fans who will pay attention, but not really a factor? I think he will matter in the future, but he doesn't really matter much right now. Uh, I've known Tucker almost 20 years. He booked me on his MSNBC show in the mid 2000s, like Tucker 2006, you know, on MSNBC. Yeah. Back then I still had a hair. We had this lovely conversation. Um, he even donated to my blog TV newser when I was a young blogger. So, so I've, I've tracked him for a long time. I, I think I know him pretty well. Right now, I think he is he's in this in-between period, you know, where he's yeah, he's making content, he's he's flying around the world meeting with uh, you know, the likes of Julian Assange. But you know, it's it's on X. X is not made for watching hour-long videos and, and we all know it. Um, I do think he'll matter with whatever his next step is. We know he's raising money, he has at least one ad advertiser commitment. There's something clearly brewing and he will matter, but you know, and there's a big, big, you know, yeah. I don't want to say but, sorry. <laughs> but I think we know that Fox is bigger than any single host. And Fox is a really, really valuable platform for those hosts. So how big can he get without Fox? You know, is it the Megyn Kelly model, a uh, radio and video like that? Maybe something like that. Um, I guess I'm trying to say it'll be hard for him to reach the heights that he was at when he was on Fox. Yeah. By the way, I, I will say like, he's showing up all kinds of places. I, he's on a, there's a, a comedian, Theo Vaughn, I think his name is. He's on his podcast, and that guy's whole thing is that he doesn't really know much. Um, it, but it's <laughs> really entertaining way, to it. watch Carlson talk like, to him. He's he's when you see him sort of out of the Fox News persona, you remember? Yeah. Oh yeah, this guy is charming, personable, funny. He's clearly smart. He likes playing sort of on the edge. So he made his. He's doing a whole sort of Viagra joke on the one I was watching. You remember, oh, this guy mm -hmm. is is good at media. Um, is there a version where he transform he has transformed himself multiple times? This version of Tucker Carlson that we used to watch on Fox or the, who was on Fox most recently was not the kind who was writing for glossy magazines. He was not the guy on MSNBC. Do you imagine he shapeshifts once again, or is this the persona that he's gonna go with? I think he's been so thoroughly radicalized and speaks now in a way that he didn't speak 10 years ago and behaves now in a way he didn't behave 10 years ago that narrows his appeal. Doesn't mean the appeal's not, you know, passionate. You know, there's obsessive fans out there. Definitely. I've, I've got Tucker fans up in my DMs all the time saying he's more popular now than ever, which is just you got, objectively false. You gotta close false. off those DMs, Brian. But we actually probably should. Um, but, you know, they, they, he has true, true believers. Let's put it that way. He has some of them, and I'm sure they're monetizable, but I don't think we're going to be talking about, oh, did you see what Tucker said uh, the way that we did two years ago? Let's shift back to the Murdochs. Um, you were on the show a couple months ago because Murdoch said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving um, for real. I'm not going to be CEO. Lachlan is going to run both News Corp and Fox. You had a book written about this. Did you have to go back and, and open up the <laughs> galleys did. and write new stuff? I am worse than the galleys. I had to take the finished PDF that was already at the printer, claw it back and go in and, and, and add a few more sentences. And you know, the way it works in book publishing, you can add as long as you're not moving it all off to a new page. Like you can't, you can't add so much that it affects the paid, the pagination. <laughs> so I would cut a sentence, add a sentence, cut okay. a paragraph, add a paragraph. So I was able to fit in Rupert's semi-retirement, but I think it was important for the following reason. This has been in the works for years. You know, what's happening um, the week of the, the 15th is mostly a formality, but, you know, it's still it's still a big moment. And I think it may also affect the 2024 election. 
Rupert was not nearly as supportive of Trump as his son Lachlan. Uh, Rupert was so hostile toward Trump and still is today. He basically hates the man. We've we've had less of that energy. At least we've heard a lot less of that energy from Lachlan. So it may matter in 2024 uh, that Rupert is taking a step back. I was just talking to Alex Sherman about how uh, the Bob Iger and Bob Chapek story. You know, Bob Iger left Disney, but he didn't really leave Disney and didn't really leave Disney. And then he came back. Is Rupert Murdoch really leaving Fox? He, they, they, you know, in his goodbye address said, I'm going to still be hanging out in the newsroom. It's still yeah. his company that he built. Um, you know, it's still, it's all his DNA. He doesn't really have anything else to do. Is he really walking away or is his hands going to be on the thing still? I mean, I'm calling it semi-retirement, and that's what some of his aides are calling it as well. I think we will hear that from him next week as well, that, you know, yes, he is still going to be active and involved. And of course, at the end of the day, he has four votes in that trust. So he has the ultimate control. Um, but this wouldn't be happening, you know, without a reason. Uh, I think it may be that he's he's wise enough to look around and, and realize he's not getting any younger. You know, after after claiming for decades that he was immortal and would never die, maybe, maybe he'd be, he's uh, He'd be one of the in. rare, rich, and powerful men who looks around and goes, yeah, maybe I should get out now before they carry me out. I mean, that doesn't usually happen. I really hope that uh, we'll be that wise, Peter, whenever the day comes. Probably not. Or maybe we'll retire no. <laughs> much earlier. Um <laughs> Last question for you. Uh, you mentioned that this trust, there's eight votes. Rupert has four when he dies, because he will die. He is not immortal. His four kids, four of his kids control Fox. This is going to remain um, conversation until this happens. What is your best bet? There's lots of different variations. Lots of things could happen. What do you think becomes of the Murdoch empire when Murdoch dies? Does it get dissolved, cut up into different pieces, sold off into parts? Does Lachlan Murdoch continue to sort of run the entire thing the way he's supposedly going to run it now? Um, I'm hesitating because I'm a little nervous to answer. This is my first interview about the book, so I don't want to screw it up. I, I guess if I had to say what's in my gut, I would say some combination uh, uh, thereof is what happens. Some, some slicing and dicing of the assets makes a lot of sense given the disagreements within the family, within the, the uh, you know, the, the group of children about what happens to these assets and what the effect of these assets is. If that's the case, why not do it now? I mean, he already sold off a big chunk to Disney. Great timing, right? Why not look around and go, look, let's, let's be clear. We sold off a, a, a sinking asset early. That was a great deal. When I die, this asset will be worth less than when I'm alive. Let's Let's sell it off now. Well, I, I think uh, I think you're pointing in the in the wise direction. I think we might look around and see Rupert's announcement about becoming chairman emeritus about this semi-retirement. I think we might look back and say, you know, that that was just like the mid-season finale, and there was a bigger move that was going to happen later. Um, you know, a la Succession. <laughs> I think you're saying that we got to have Brian Stelter back on the show. Brian Stelter, your book is called Network of Lies. It is available next week. Everyone who listens to this podcast will buy it and read it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks to Brian. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to my awesome team, Travis, Jelani, Jolie. They're all awesome. Our advertisers are awesome. You're awesome. I'm kind of good. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.